0: Maybe seated. Good morning. It's a beautiful day, beautiful Memorial Day weekend. Uh, my name is Andrew Campbell. I serve on staff here at Christ Community. I uh, am a pastoral fellow, um, and I serve primarily at our Leewood campus. So it's really good to be with you here this morning. Uh, as we start, finish this old adage with me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... That was good. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for helping me out. Uh, kids, have you heard this before? I know I heard this growing up. I had to live with this adage with, uh, with brothers in the house, right? That's, that's the adage I grew up with. And it sounds really good, doesn't it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It sounds good. It's catchy. It's optimistic. It's hopeful, even. But here's the thing. It just isn't true, right? Right? We all know this from experience. Our words matter, don't they? It matters what we say and how we say it. And sometimes what matters the most is who's doing the talking. Parents, your words matter. They carry significant weight in the lives of your kids. I've never felt more loved, more accepted in my life than when my dad says to me, Son, I'm so proud of you. I mean, that's the best, right? Spouses, your words matter. They can be the knife that cuts your partner to the core, but they can, they can also bring great healing and encouragement. Bosses, your words matter. Friends, your words matter to one another. Be, be careful what you say to each other. It's important what we say and who we say it to. There are consequences for good and for ill. But whose words matter the most? Who has the final say in our lives? Who has the final word? Because that's the one that matters the most. And I'd like to suggest that it's the one who spoke the universe into being by a word, who can calm a storm with his voice, who has called this community together to one another. It's, it's his word that matters the most. God has the final word. God has the final word. It's His voice that carries the most weight, and what He has to say really, really matters. And that's why most of us are here this morning, right? To hear what God has to say in His Word. As we turn to our passage this morning, I think we'll see the answers to three questions about this final word, what God has said. And those questions are what is being said? Why should we listen? And how do we respond? What is being said? Why should we listen? And how do we respond? But before we dive in, let's just take a minute uh, to ask that God would speak in this moment. Father, we're so grateful for your word and the chance to gather and worship uh, with beautiful song. Uh, But God, in these moments, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Soften them to receive your word. Lord, where I uh, say... Your words after you, I pray that there would be power and conviction and clarity and transformed lives. God, I pray that your word would, would come and rest uh, on us this morning, that we'd be changed. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've seen in Hebrews that the God of the Bible is a God who speaks. This is, a, this is established really in the opening words of the book, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how this sermon opens. Now, there are many places we could look in Scripture to see that God is speaking, but our passage places us on a certain mountain with Moses and the Israelites, the people of God. So we'll see the answer to our first question, what is being said? What is being said? What is God saying when he speaks? I'm going to warn you, it's not pretty, right? We just heard it read. God's people are assembled at Sinai to hear from God after the Exodus. Look at verses 18 through 21. They'll be up on the screen too. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now try to picture it, right? On, on the mountain was a massive storm with ear splitting thunder, blinding lightning and smoke that made visibility impossible, and breathing a chore. It's a terrifying sight. And when Moses retold this story, he said that it was so frightening that all the people in the camp trembled. No one dared even step foot on the mountain out of fear. And then God started to speak from that mountain. First thing he said went something like this, If anyone dares to step foot on this mountain, you will die. Your animals, you, all the people, if you step foot on this mountain, blood will be spilled. As if anyone was even thinking it. No way, right? And God kept speaking, but the people couldn't bear it, so they asked him to stop. Imagine that. God's people asking God to stop talking. This is what happens almost any time anyone encounters God in the Bible. He's, he's terrifying Uh, Unapproachable, unbearable. That's the picture we get a lot of times in the Old Testament, right? Look back at those words in 1821 fire, gloom, tempest. I don't even know what tempest is, but it sounds bad, right? Darkness, dread, death. Everything about this place says, stay away, don't come any closer. And here's the deal. The author's painting a picture for us of the old covenant, that agreement between God and his people that was ratified from a distance because of the unholiness of the assembly. There's a collective unworthiness of the covenant assembly that cries out for God's judgment of sin. He is too other. He is too holy. And his voice will shake you to the core. Put yourself at the base of this mountain where God resides. It's dark and dreadful. You can't breathe. You dare not touch it. You can hardly bring yourself to look at it. You'd probably feel like running, but there's nowhere to go. You can't get away from it. You can't outrun the dread that such a place creates in your heart. There's terror and loneliness and distance, and the guilt, that sense of judgment and condemnation that you know you deserve, that I know I deserve. God sits in judgment over sin. That's what's so terrifying about this mountain. And someone has to pay for this disparity between God's holiness and the sin of humanity. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Look again at the text. There's actually good news here coming, right? Look at verse 18, right at the beginning. You have not come to this mountain. We have not arrived at this mountain. This is not the way we have to encounter God, right? There's another mountain, a better mountain. It's a very different place, though still marked by this sense of holiness and otherness. But it's more personal, more relational. More like home. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says, but, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, as we get to this point in the text, we can let out kind of a sigh, right? Or maybe a woohoo! This mountain sounds like a party, right? Does anybody get excited when you read this? This is much better than the other mountain. We have come to this mountain. This is a place of great joy, of celebration, and relationship. There are angels around a dinner table, saints awaiting the next guests, and a God who is ready to declare his own not guilty. It's hard to miss the contrast between Sinai and Zion. And there are two in particular between this mountain, Mount Zion and the first, that I'd like to point out. First, we can encounter God with joy instead of dread. One has fire, The other feasting. One has dread; the other mountain is characterized by delight. One has gloom; the other gladness. And I love this phrase: "Innumerable angels in festal gathering." Right? I mean, what what does that mean? What the translation is a little confusing. The word "festal gatherings" was originally used in the context of a party thrown during games. Think of like an opening ceremony of the Olympics. Right. Or a great tailgate. That's kind of oddly the first thing I thought of was a great tailgate. This party with games. Or kids, think of a really good birthday party. You know, there's food, there's games, there's fun, there's cake, right? There's got to be cake. Uh, Friends, the Christian life is on a trajectory toward a great party, which means I think we should be good at celebration right now right? As Christians, we're people of celebration who should laugh harder and throw better parties because the place we're headed to is a place of innumerable angels in festal gathering. You should probably try to use the word festal uh, this next week. Use it in a sentence sometime. Think of that as an application point, right, for this message. Look, lose lose your image of heaven as a harp on a cloud and replace it with a feast filled with laughter and joy, if that doesn't fill you with hope to endure in this race, like we've been talking about in this book, and fuel your Christian witness as you, te- as you speak with others, I don't, I don't know what will. This picture of heaven is a feast where there's celebration. Second, our, our approach to God is characterized by relationship instead of distance. Relationship instead of distance. In fact, The language of Zion paints a picture of home, the primary place where relationships are designed to flourish in the home. See, there's no permanent dwelling at the base of Sinai. You can't live at the base of that mountain. There's death. And praise God that it's not, that Sinai isn't the final destination. Zion is called the the dwelling place of the living God. It's a city where we will not merely be permitted into the presence of God. We are welcomed as sons and daughters. We can approach this holy God as his children. And you may be thinking, so what is it that makes these mountains such vastly different places? I mean, the God of these mountains is the same God. We do not I don't want to say that these are two different gods. It's Sinai and Zion, right? He's holy. He's awesome. He's even called Judge at the Second Mountain. What, you know, why is one marked with dread and the other one by joy and relationship? What makes the difference? And the answer is typical kind of Sunday school stuff, right? Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. We have come to Jesus and his blood, which speaks a better word. God has the final word, and Sinai isn't the end of the story. It isn't the end of God's self-revelation, and that's what the Bible is all about, right? God's revealing of himself in his word and our response to it. Jesus himself is the final word. Remember the opening words of Hebrews, you know, that long ago and in many ways God spoke to the fathers, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. It's the fullest picture of God's character. He is the final word. And this text says that we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what what does that mean, right? This blood that speaks. The author compares Jesus' blood to the blood of this guy named Abel. Now, the this, this is a, an obscure story from the Old Testament, and he builds his argument around it. What's he getting at? Well, here's this, the quick story of Cain and Abel. Abel had a brother named Cain, and Cain was intensely jealous of his brother, Abel. Intense like, I want to kill you, intense, right? And that's what Cain did. He killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. First murder in Scripture. God saw this, of course, and asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? That's where we get the infamous phrase, am I my brother's keeper? Cain's response, I have no idea. I have no idea where Abel is. But of course God knew what Cain did and said, your brother's blood is crying out to me. It's crying out for justice, for you to be judged, for you to be condemned for what you did. Abel's blood is crying out speaks a word of guilt and judgment the blood of abel accuses and here's the bad news the blood is on our hands too all of us have a brother who died because of us and his blood cries out from the ground we saw this earlier in hebrews jesus the god of the universe is called our brother our brother's blood was shed because of us, because of my jealousy, my pride, my selfishness, my sin, and your sin. Put Jesus on the cross. The blood of Jesus should speak a word of accusation, but it speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a word of acceptance instead of rejection. Though it should send me away, it welcomes me in. Jesus' blood welcomes us to where we could never go on our own. It says, come, join the feast. Become a son or a daughter. Live in his presence. Find your home in the joy of being in the presence of God. And it speaks a word of forgiveness instead of judgment. The blood that should condemn me Sets me free. The blood that should announce my end proclaims my beginning. The blood that should lead to my death leads to life. That's the beautiful message of the gospel, friends. That blood changes everything, it turns a mountain of terror into a mountain of joy, transforms the way to God from a place of dread to a place of delight. Jesus took upon himself the judgment that we deserved. That's how we can come to this mountain. God has the final word, and it's a beautiful message of grace and peace in the Son, in his son, Jesus Christ. So it should be clear, right? We want this second mountain. We want to come to this place. We want the blood of Jesus and the word it speaks. But sometimes we miss that message, don't we? Sometimes we struggle to hear this word, but we need to listen. Why should we listen to God's voice? That's the second point that the author raises, and he goes there in verses 25 to 27. And it's actually in the form of a warning, the final warning of this book. Look at verse 25. It says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, they being God's people in the wilderness, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Many times and in many ways God has spoken in the past, Hebrews 1, that Israelites heard his voice and rejected him. They refused to listen and they paid a dear price. Throughout the sermon, the authors warned us over and over and over, don't refuse God's voice. He's warned us of drifting away from the faith, of throwing in the towel and calling it quits. But the stakes have never been higher here. Right? The hearers of this sermon are being warned against rejecting the highest expression of God's grace in the sacrifice of Jesus. We should listen because Jesus has come down from the mountain as it were, as this, and he has spoken the final word in his life and death and resurrection, a better word. He's the fullest expression of God and of humanity, and his blood speaks a message of grace and forgiveness. If we reject him and the message that he brings, there's nothing left. There's no way of escape. If we thought the Israelites were in trouble, when they rejected God's voice, we can't imagine what awaits those who reject the true and better Jesus. That's at the heart of this somber warning. We dare not turn a deaf ear to this voice because a greater judgment's coming, friends. And there's no middle ground. When God's voice shakes the heavens and the earth, there's only one kingdom that will remain. There's no escaping judgment if you don't listen up. Now let's linger here for a minute. What's all this business about voices that shake things? What's the author saying at this point? He's actually drawing from a passage in Haggai 2. You're like, what guy? Haggai? Uh, Haggai's an old... That was terrible. I'm sorry. But as I said it out loud, it was not as good as I thought. Uh, Haggai's an Old Testament prophet. uh, And he had an important word that the author here is picking up. In these verses, see, Haggai remembered that first mountain, Sinai, where God spoke, when the mountains shook and the people were terrified. But Haggai also spoke of another time when God would speak. At the end of all time, God will speak in everything evil, everything wrong, everything unjust, every sadness and pain will be removed. Haggai said there's a day coming when God will speak, and nothing but what is good will be able to withstand that voice. Imagine being able to raise your voice and cancer no longer existed. Imagine speaking and all wars end. Imagine a voice that can close every hospital, empty every cemetery, make the lame walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. Because Haggai said... There's a day coming when that voice will be raised. Only things that cannot be shaken will remain on that day. You might be thinking, Andrew, why would I ever refuse that voice? Right? Why would I ever refuse the voice of grace? The question answers itself. Why would you refuse this voice? Why would we listen to anything that's not the word of God. But we do, don't we? we? We're constantly trying to cling to and live for things that are shakeable. We build our lives around things that we can see now, things that offer something in the moment. We build our lives around things like money, like sexual pleasure, like a prestigious career that provides comfort and status. We build our lives around getting good grades, around who or if we date, around how our kids turn out. And if I'm honest, the kingdom that I'm constructing is often built upon the shaky ground of what other people think about all those things. But one day, his voice will be raised and those opinions will cease to matter. The only thing that matters is how we respond to the one who is speaking we must not refuse his voice. He has the final word. If you're a Christian this morning, whatever voice you heard coming in today, hear this. Hear this voice. Come, join my feast. Be my son. Be my daughter. Be made perfect. Be made whole. Come to the mountain where everything sad will come untrue. My blood speaks a better word, a word that heals, that forgives, that makes whole, why would you listen to any other voice? Don't refuse it. It's speaking over you now. If you're not a Christian or struggle to believe, let me say that we're really glad you're here. But this passage is actually challenging you this morning. It's saying that without Jesus, there's only accusation. Only the dread and judgment of Sinai. Only the blood of Abel that cries out guilty. The voice of unending grace is absent from your life. That voice that will, that will speak everything bad out of existence, you'll never hear that voice. Whether you hear it or not, that voice is speaking to you now. Don't refuse it. God has the final word and we must listen. But what is that really look like, right? In everyday life, what does it look like to listen to the voice of God? How do we respond? And that's where the author goes in our final verses, verses 28 and 29. Look at the text. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. In a word, the call, the response is a call to worship. It's an exhortation to respond in worship. There are two expressions of that worship in view here. First, we're called to worship with gratitude. We should be a thankful people for all the reasons that we've seen already in this passage. And honestly, my first, uh, the first thing I thought of was uh, this cafe right down the street, Cafe Gratitude. Um, that's where Beth and I actually met uh, gave for the first time. This is a really great place, right? Great food, sweet vibe, friendly service. If you haven't been, uh, consider this a shameful, uh, unsolicited plug for Cafe Gratitude, right? And it's, it's really unlike any, anywhere that I've been. Uh, they have a number of really impressive business practices. And the one, the one that I love is the question of the day. They have this question of the day that the servers ask you before the meal. And here's what I found on their website about this practice. They said, This is our invitation for you to acknowledge something that is great about your life. You may choose to answer the question or not. Sometimes your server will invite you to answer amongst yourselves. And if you want to share with him or her, they're going to listen. Both are fine with us. Remember, you're in a place called Cafe Gratitude, and we couldn't help but ask. I love that last line. They couldn't help but ask. Of course, they want to provide great food, right? That's what they're in the business to do. Uh, But they also see their mission as helping people take time out of their day to acknowledge the good things in their life, The, the things that they should be grateful for. And on the whole, we have much to be grateful for, right? Many of us in this room experience abundance that most in the world cannot fathom. We have people, relationships, resources, comforts in our life that should result in deep gratitude. Sometimes it can be hard to see through the challenges, though, right? I don't want to minimize the tough things that we have in our lives. Some of us are on a tough stretch of this race that we've been called to endure through. The people in this book were in a similar place. But the call to gratitude isn't anchored in the things that can fall away when it all starts to shake, when judgment comes. It says, let us be grateful. Why? Because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Real gratitude can only come from something that I cannot lose because my sense of thankfulness can never change. That's the author's point. And if you're in Christ this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, your invitation to the second mountain will not be revoked you will join that heavenly gathering. God will welcome you as a firstborn son or daughter. God will make you perfect. The blood of Jesus will forever declare you right, innocent, whole. Christians, therefore, should be known for their thankfulness because that which we are most thankful for can never be lost. It's unshakable. And that gratitude is offered as worship. Second, we're called to worship with reverence. Worship with reverence. Sometimes reverence requires a trip past that first mountain. Don't forget what we've encountered at Sinai. If we're not careful, our worship can amount to nothing more than just mere emotion and feel goods. Now there's no place for dread, no place for terror. Or condemnation because the cross of christ has changed the game right he mediates a better covenant he makes a better agreement between us and god possible he's guaranteed it by his blood but there's still a place for healthy fear before god reverence is fear rightly understood it's it's the dread the terror of sinai that has been transformed by the blood of jesus And produces gospel awe. Friends, our God is an awesome God. He alone is holy. He alone is worthy of our worship. Acceptable worship. He's a consuming fire. And we won't get a full view of God unless we tread on this holy ground. This road to reverence. The path from Sinai to Zion has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Christ. And that blood makes reverent worship possible. And if you really think about it, reverence assumes obedience, doesn't it? We're kidding ourselves if we say that we have a healthy fear of God while the patterns of our life say otherwise. We can't fear God and continually disregard his word. Acceptable worship must include obedience to the God who speaks. We'll talk more about that next week. How our everyday life and the issues that we face take place on holy ground. How our lives, our whole lives, are to be offered, to be placed on the altar and devoted to God as worship. That's truly how we worship with reverence. You and I were made for the mountain that Hebrews talks about. We were made for worship, for joy in God's presence. The mountain that we are promised will become our home. God has the final word, and He's spoken decisively in Jesus. Listen to His voice. Respond with gratitude and reverence because His voice is the one that matters the most. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak and that because of your Son, we can approach you not with dread, not with terror but as those who have been forgiven. Forgiven of great sin, yes, but covered completely by the blood of Christ. Thank you that the blood of Christ speaks a better word. We're not condemned, guilty, that we can come to you in relationship, that we can approach your throne with boldness and joy. Pray that we ask that the rest of our time this morning would be offered as worship in reverence, and gratitude, and that as we go from this place, the same would be true. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.